I'd like to say good evening and welcome to God's house this evening. I hope you guys had as much fun as I did today. We went out and tangled with some fish and had a fun time. And I hope um, this evening that y'all can give me some grace. Because I'm going to give you a disclaimer before I start this evening. This is a sermon that I feel passionate about. Because I love children. And I do not preach this sermon this evening because my children are perfect, number one, and because your children are terrible. Don't, that's not why I preach this sermon this evening. It's just an area that I see in my own life where I've made mistakes with my own children. And if I can share something with you that you can apply to you raising your children, that's what this is all about, right? So this evening we want to talk about your child's conscience. Does the Bible talk about our conscience? What's another word that in the Bible is so closely related that we, we equal it to our conscience? Is there a word in there? Thank you. There's a Greek word, and I don't know if I'll pronounce this right. I have it written down so I can, but don't know if I'll do it right. Spoon, no, sunadeasis. And it's translated our conscience. And it appears about 30 times in the New Testament. There's also a word in the Old Testament that is equal to our conscience. And that word's much easier to say. It's a Hebrew word, and that's laid. And that's related to 860 times. We're not going to turn to 1 Samuel. But in 1 Samuel 24, verse 5, it says, David's heart, his heart, his conscience, troubled him. Anybody know why? Felt guilty. Felt guilty. What did he do? Off the corner of 
cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And I'm not trying to make light of this, but have we ever done something, in my mind, insignificant like that, and yet it bothered your conscience? You see, David, in that instance, had people around him saying, Here's your chance. Remember last night? Here's your chance. This is your guy. This is the guy that's chasing you. And David says, you know, I'll just cut off a piece of his robe. And then his conscience bothered him. What about Job in Job 26 verse 7? We know the story. Job lost everything. He was a lot more wealthy than I probably will ever be. And he lost everything but his wife. And in Job chapter 27 verse 6 it says, My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach as long as I live. His conscience, his heart, he will not change. So what is the working of the conscience? Does the Bible offer us some explanation of its activities? What's our conscience do? Anybody want to tell me? Anybody say something? Convicts? What else? Guides us. Guides us? What else? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse starting at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in, in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has showed it unto them. Now listen to verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. What's that mean? Thinking about your conscience, what does that mean? As I look at this verse, I see things that, in my own words, were instilled in youth from the creation of the earth. There are certain things in your conscience that are instilled in you, and that's what it is. This is what is right. 
It's stamped on your heart. It's stamped on your conscience. Now let's go to Romans chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. It says, For when the Gentiles, which were have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. You see what this says? There was a law made for the Jews, I'll say. There was a law made. And yet when the Gentiles were doing things, they did it right, I'll say. How did they do it right? What made them do it right? It says, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, can we agree? Because of their conscience, they did the right thing. Does anybody know what Psalms 119 verse 11 says? It's a very familiar verse. While somebody's looking that up, you know, we're thinking about one part of the conscience, and that is the part that we are given from birth, you might say. The Bible says from creation, we're given a certain amount of our conscience. Anybody find Psalms 119 verse 11? Thy word that I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So can we agree this evening this, you know, is written by David and we know what David did and his conscience bothered him. So can we agree this evening that as we think of our own conscience or our children's conscience, there's an area that we as parents as grandparents, as uncles and aunts, whatever it is. There's an area in children that we have the ability to train their conscience. The primary conscience that we talked about first is the part that's given to us from birth. We might say it another way, it's God's thumbprint of ownership. He puts it on us. He gave us the basic things of right and wrong, right? I mean, there's certain things in the world today that you can go and ask almost anyone. And they know that's right or that's wrong. There's certain things. That's our primary conscience. And then there's, I'll label it, our moral conscience. 
So how do we as parents affect that moral conscience of our children? Maybe by a godly example. Right? Remember what I said last night, for those of you that were here last night, about keeping our commitments? And when they think back and they make a commitment when they get to a certain age and they think back, you know what? My parents, they kept their commitments. They showed me that commitments are very important. See, that's what I'm talking about, moral conscience. The area that we can train. Can we also agree that our moral conscience is maybe a lot deeper than our primary conscience? Maybe an example for this, Exodus 20, 20 verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. That's just a primary conscience thing, right? What does Matthew 5, 28 say? You know, in Exodus, it says, in Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. But in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says, whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her hath already committed it. You see, primary conscience. And Jesus takes it farther and says, here's what the moral conscience should look like. We're going to go back to Psalms 119, verse 11. We're going to try to bring four items out of this verse when we think about our moral conscience. It says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We have an object here. Right? David hid something. What did he hide? Not a trick question. What did he hide? God's word. Where did he hide it? In his heart. Why did he hide it? So he wouldn't sin. So when you're thinking about your moral conscience, yours or your children's, there's four things that we have to establish here. Number one, we have to establish, since we have so many warehouses around us, we have to establish a moral warehouse. A warehouse of very important things. And then we have to establish the four activities of, the, of our conscience. 
And you know, when you think about a warehouse, there has to be forklifts, right? Going back and forth. So we have a moral search mechanism. And then we have training. So how do we, as Christian parents, establish a moral warehouse in our children's heart or conscience? You know, we as parents have the opportunity just divide this church right here since there's a I call it an alleyway here this is where our forklift is going to go up and down and as our children are growing up as they go to Sunday school they go to school or they're homeschooled or whatever we teach them Bible memory right why so they can recite it in front of other people why do we teach them Bible memory? We're, think, we're thinking about a warehouse, right? So we teach them a verse out of the Bible. And as we teach them that verse, we explain what that verse means. And that goes in their little warehouse, and the forklift turns and it puts it up on that shelf. And there's a red tag on it, right? Easy to be identified, right? And we just keep teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. Every opportunity that we have. And that warehouse just gets filled with all these things and a red tag on it. It's labeled. Honesty. Respect. Fairness. Wisdom. Honor. Gentleness. Patience. You see, all these things that we teach our children, there they are, they're stored and they're labeled. And this little search mechanism, our forklift, goes back and forth, stacking these things in that warehouse. Next comes the four activities of our conscience. Let's go back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 again. It says, Which shew the work of the law, where? Written. So that warehouse, it's stored in there, right? Those little alleys, those little compartments, they're jam-packed, clear, full, right? So the conscience has the ability to assess our behaviors, right? Just like David. We do something and our conscience says, hey, you did it right this time. Or, yeah. why did you do it that way? Why did you say that? 
We see the four activities of our moral conscience. Two are positive and two are negative. We'll look at the negative first. The two negative services of our conscience is warning and accusing. Let's go pick on David again. In 2 Samuel 24.10, what did he do? See, I love David because when he did something, I don't, I don't think he was just out in the sheep fields all the time growing up. I envisioned him being with his mom and his dad and some older brothers. And they were filling that warehouse with things. Filling it with important things. Because you see, David in 2 Samuel 24 was told not to do something. He was told not to number the people. And yet he did. And his conscience, his heart, I think the way the Bible reads, his heart bothered him. Can we agree this evening that David's heart was coated with standards of right and wrong? And when he crossed the boundary of his own conscience, that warehouse of, of stuff, when he crossed over that boundary, his conscience bothered him. And it activated a sense of guilt. The positive side of our conscience is where we get prompted and it confirms us. We know what that feels like. You might be walking through the store, I don't know. And your mind just tells you, hold the door. And you hold the door. And whoever's coming in the door says, thank you, thank you, thank you. That was so kind of you. You see, your conscience prompted you. And then it confirms you. That little search mechanism has found the right thing. And it confirmed you that you did the right thing. So let's look at that search mechanism for a little bit. You know, thinking of the warehouse and all these things popped in there with those red tags on there. The conscience has a job to do, right? We're very busy as human beings. We have a lot of things going on. A lot of things to think about. And this little forklift is racing up and down in there. Trying to find certain red tags. Maybe for an example this evening, it goes something like this. You have a prayer circle. And you're all there. You're on time. It's 7 o'clock. You're on time. You start. 
all the chairs are full. And five minutes late, in walks this man, this elderly man. He's having trouble walking. You know for sure he can't stand very long. And he's part of your group. You had just forgot that he was coming, right? And there in an instant, as you sit there, your search mechanism starts to work, right? And that little forklift is racing up and down there. He's trying to find a red tag, right? Anybody know a verse in the Bible that talks about a gray-headed man? Anybody want to take a stab? I'll tell you it's in the Old Testament. That's the only hint. Your parents must not have taught you. You don't have that red tag. Here's what it reads. Leviticus 19.32 You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. You see, we do it. If we're taught. And that little search mechanism runs up and down and it finds that red tag and it comes back and says, Jerry, you need to move. You need to move. This man's older than you. He's got gray hair. He's, at least he has hair. Move. You can go get a chair. So I get up and I go get a chair. But what if I was never taught that? And there I sit. And the gray-headed man comes in. And he walks in, and my search mechanism runs back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And there's no red tag that reads Leviticus 19.32. It's not there. What happens? Do I move? Nope. Search mechanism goes back to station and says... I don't know what to do. I don't find anything. I can't tell you what to do. You see, if it doesn't come back with that verse, if it doesn't come back with the red tag of respect age, I just sit there. Am I wrong? As a Christian, yes, I'm wrong. But am I really wrong because I've never been taught that? Just some food for thought for you. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Our life is a product of the way we think. When we think of ourselves instead of others, our perspective becomes morally dull to the needs of those around us, right? So that second area, that second example, there I sat. 
And my search mechanism went back and forth and couldn't find anything. But it also brought back, you fished all day, you're tired, sit still, right? For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What about positive and prohibitive training? We all understand this. We raise children. And those of you that are in the thick of it, maybe this will help you. When a two-year-old disobeys, does it get the same consequence that a ten-year-old gets? No. So we'll role play a little bit again this evening. And I'll pick on Kristen, she's not here. And we'll say she's two. And for whatever reason, I'm taking her to the park and we're going to walk through the park. Maybe it's some daddy time. I'm going to take her for a walk through the park. And as we walk through the park, there's flowers, lots of flowers. Flowers everywhere. And as we walk through the park, she wants to go over and pick them. What do I do? You see, at the age of two, her moral warehouse is pretty empty, right? She has a primary conscience. She understands some things of right and wrong. But her moral warehouse needs some filling up. So maybe as a two-year-old, maybe I smack her hand a little bit and tell her no. Right? And we keep walking. What happens when Kristen is, we'll say, four? And it's spring again and we're going to the to the park and there's all the flowers again. And she knows that the last time she wanted to pick the flowers, she got a swat on the hand and told no. And yes, at age two, that's probably pretty good. But at age three or four, I think we have to go beyond that. We have to start filling those boxes, remember? And as she walks away from me to pick a flower, I tell her no, and I start to explain, you know, what would it be like if all the children and all the parents that came through the park each picked a flower? What would happen? No flower. Pretty soon there would be no flowers, right? So each person that walked through there picked a flower, they would take one flower home and they would get to enjoy one flower rather than enjoying the whole beautiful garden. And we explained, 
the difference to them that it's good to let the flowers there so that the people coming behind us can enjoy the park just as we can. I don't know. I should have looked up for a verse for that. I didn't find one. Didn't do my due diligence. But oftentimes we as parents can add a verse to what we're trying to explain. To add to that red tag that goes in that moral warehouse, right? And then it's labeled. And stuck away in her heart. For a different time. You see, because when we start to train our children that others are important, we start to train them that they see the needs of others, right? You see, as a two-year-old, as a four-year-old, they want it for themselves. They want that flower for themselves. They're not thinking about anybody else. Nobody else is important but them. And as we train them, their warehouse, their warehouse starts to fill up with biblical virtues. And why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we need to do that? Because, you see, we don't like to admit this, but at some point, my children will all make decisions on their own, right? So will yours. And there come a point that they'll look at you as a parent and they'll say, I'm old enough, Jonathan. You don't have to tell me. I'm an adult. I can do what I want to do. And at that point, it's like a sledgehammer in the head, right? I hope, I hope that I have that moral warehouse full of things. So as they go out in the world, they can pull those little things off because I showed them the importance of respecting age. Since we talked about that tonight, that's just one thing. Or the importance of valuing those around them. You know, I'll stop right here and just throw in a little nugget, I guess, on marriage. You know, I think if we could inspect our spouse's warehouse and understand the things that they were taught stuffed in there and then compare it against what our warehouse looked like, maybe we would understand why our spouse reacts a certain way. Because you see, if I look back in my life, I think I was raised right. I know how things happen. Of course, according to the priest, right? And Heidi says, you know what? 
Those priests, they are losers. The Becks have it right. And I have to admit that there's areas that the Becks do have it right. Because in my training, there's certain things that my search mechanism goes for and it's not there. It's not there. It comes back empty. And I don't respond. Heidi's search mechanism goes in there and boom, it's right there. Wow. It's got a red tag. It comes back and she's like, Jerry, I mean, what's wrong with you? You see how easy it happens to us? I'm not saying it's not our fault. Because we should be storing up our warehouse too. And filling it with areas where, can I say our parents made mistakes? Yeah, because my kids are old enough that I can acknowledge that I made mistakes. Training them and teaching them. Why do your children obey you? Let's go back to, I'll say, five to ten year olds. Why do they obey you? You know, there's two terms to describe the conditions of the heart as a result of right or wrong training. You know, a healthy, positive conscience in your children says, I ought to do this because it's right, or I ought to, do, or I ought to not do this because it's wrong. The prohibitive conscience says, I must, or else I'll be punished. You see the difference? You see, if we go back to Kristen at the age of two, and she goes through the garden, and I just swat her hand and say no. And at the age of four, we go through the garden, and I swat her hand and say no. And at the age of six, and eight, and ten, and I'm still swatting her hand and saying no. Why is she going to listen to me? Yeah, I'm her dad, and she should listen to me. Because, but is she going to listen to me in other areas of her life because she knows what's right and what's wrong? No. She's only going to listen to me because she's going to get punished if she doesn't. You know, as I explained, you know, as we develop between the two and the four-year-old, and as they get older, we explain things to them. That's the positive development that we can encourage in their conscience and their heart. That's a healthy conscience. That's the qualities that we desire to see 
in my children, but also in your children. That's what I, that's what I desire to see. But the opposite side of that that we talked about a little bit, I only do what I do because otherwise I'll be punished. What a way to live in fear. Always on the verge, not knowing when am I going to make a mistake? When am I going to do it wrong? Because then I'm going to be punished. And we live in an overly sensitive state. Fearing that if I do this, I'm going to disappoint Jonathan. If I do this, I'm going to disappoint Britain. If I do this, I'm going to disappoint someone else. And we just fear all these circumstances that are before me. No, that's not why I should do what is right. No. I should do what is right because my moral circuit or mechanism went down through that alley and it found that box and it brought it back. And it said, Jerry, this is what you should do. Get up and move. For the gray-haired man. Because you need to respect his age, his wisdom, his understanding. So why... Why do we raise our children to fear us sometimes? Why do we do that? How did you learn how to raise children? How do you know how to raise children? Oftentimes we just rely back on what our parents did right and what our parents did wrong and we try to you know, bring that all together and we try to do better, right? Or is it sometimes we lack the confidence in raising children? And we find the use of guilt and conditional love to be easy ways to control our children's outward behavior. You see, if we use these things, have you ever been in the store? And I hope you don't say this. But if you've been in the store and you've seen children misbehaving and the parent looks at them and says, I don't love you anymore. Why, why would they say that? Because they're being naughty, right? And that child soon learns 
that the only way that child can have the love of a parent is if they do right. Remember what I said about the fear of doing wrong? And do we remember that as we raise our children, especially we as dads, Our children look at us as a symbol of a heavenly father. So how do we correct that prohibitive conscience that we've built into our children? Resolve this evening to automatically respond to the circumstances that you see. You don't want your children to obey you because they're going to lose your love if they don't. You want your children to obey you because it's right. I would encourage you as you see your children, your grandchildren doing things. Talk to them. Explain the biblical principles that have been explained to you. Why you do certain things. And be very careful that you leave the biblical principles, maybe not the same ones that you're trying to teach that child, but other ones that you have been taught to control you as you train those around you. You know, me and Heidi were told very early in our married life that if you ever have children, you never spank your children out of anger because they'll sense that. Never ever show that anger to your children. No, take a step back. Tell them that you're going to deal with this in five minutes, ten minutes, and you'll get control of yourself. So that you can show them love as you correct their attitude. Train yourself to not be driven by virtue, but instead by moral reason and not out of fear. You know, we don't need a world full of people second-guessing every decision that they make because they don't know who is not going to like them because of the decision they make. No. no. We want our 
and children to grow up to know right from wrong. To know what to do right, when to do right. And to do right, even if it hurts. And I think we as parents have a duty to teach them that. And show them firsthand that me, me as your dad, is ready to keep my commitments when it hurts. And do what's right, even though it might cost me, it might hurt me. It's okay. It's okay. There's a couple of verses in Proverbs I want to read yet. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Very important verse to be stored in that warehouse with a red tag on it. Proverbs twenty twenty two. Do not say, "I will repay evil." Wait for the Lord, and He will save you. You know these these things are simple. We understand them. And yet, when we get in the conflict, we get in the difficult situation, we don't let that search mechanism go back and forth and bring it back. We don't even let it get moving and we react, right? Proverbs 21-23 says, He who guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. I've always liked Proverbs 26, 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Those situations sometimes where someone is irating you, and they say something, and you don't even, like I said, you don't even let your, your search mechanism undock, Right? You don't even let it do anything. And you're straight back. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. So I'll let you with some questions this evening. What standards are you going to write on your child's heart? Your grandchild's heart? Your great-grandchild's heart? Because, you see, we priests act in a certain way because the way I've trained, been trained. And so it is with your family. That name will go on 
And what you have stored in that warehouse, that search mechanism will go find. And your name will go forth one way or the other. The next question I have for you is how are you going to write them? How will you write them? When will you write them? And a question that we, you know, parents so often will gloss over this next one. You know, we'll make excuses why we don't treat a certain person a certain way, you know, way back when, right? Your children don't have any idea about that. Will you as a parent adhere to and promote biblical values, esteeming the preciousness of others? Do you show your parents or your children the preciousness of others as their parents? Or do you gloss over that? A child's conscience is a moral reflection of his parents. It just is. It's just the way it is. And maybe the last question that I have for you this evening is, do you honestly have the love of Christ in your heart? The love of Christ as he showed, as he walked this earth, the preciousness of others, his reaction to others. Remember all those verses I read in Proverbs? That was Jesus to a T, right? And so often, so easy, that's not Jerry. No. Just remember, one way or the other, we're teaching our children.